Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. This is Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Podcast Series. The series this time is about culture and the city. Um, and on that subject, I'm delighted to say that we've got the 24-hour economy commissioner for New South Wales, Michael Rodriguez, um, who talks to us about the strategy and the objectives of the 24-hour strategy, um, which is a kind of variation of the nighttime economy mayors that we've seen around the world. The nighttime economy is critical to the future of our cities. And of course, we're all trying to think through strategies and interventions to revive and revitalize our cities. Michael holds up the possibility that Sydney is not just going back to something, but going forward to something even better than before. So this is a story of optimism, uh, as well as innovation of relevance, I think, across the globe. Michael Rodriguez, very welcome to this podcast. And uh, I'm very excited to have you, obviously. Uh, although you could allege that I say that about everybody every time. In fact, this is not true. I'm very, very interested in talking to you. you you've got an amazing role, which I want to talk about first. What is your role? You are 24-hour commissioner, 24-hour economy commissioner for New South Wales? That's right. It is. It's such a long title. But... and. I keep using it as a basis for should I be paid at least twice or if not three times as much since I'm working 24 hours a day. It's a, a bit of a joke to get us started. But uh, yeah, it's a, a concept, Tim, of really about flexibility of trading a city, I think, is the best way to think about it. If you had a trucking company, for example, you wouldn't park your truck up for 16 hours a day. So why, if you had a city, would you leave it standing idle for 16 hours a day if you could find a way for trade? Now, does that mean everything 24 hours a day, seven days a week? No, it means an environment in which possibilities are made uh, actualities by providing a regulatory environment, enabling environment for things to happen going out. Yes, but equally servicing international markets from Australia and the like. So the that's the, the kind of role uh, prompted partly by the experience Sydney had with its uh, lockout era and understanding that uh, that perhaps we hadn't taken as good care of the nighttime economy as, as that balances and and how do we go about sort of you know thinking about that as we as we move into a new a new era well before we get into the the nitty-gritty of what you're doing and I there aren't that many cities or states internationally doing what you're doing but let's just talk a bit about Sydney we've got an international audience let's just uh, position it for them sydney how do i think about it city of five million uh, probably at at the very minimum five times the physical size of london you know it's a it's huge in comparison with london massively diverse uh with a big international population up until covid was growing at about ninety thousand people a year so this is not a small place global city uh, the CBD economy was uh, 7-8% of the GDP of the nation, one of the top dozen 15 financial services economies in the world. You know, this is a very big, sophisticated city that we have put in, in your control, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so where, yes. where did the idea come from? Why did we need a, a, a it was originally a nighttime uh, economy commissioner, now 24 hour. Tell me a little bit of the history about why they appointed, why they appointed you former chief executive manager director of Time Out. So I think I get it. But uh, what, what was the what was the rationale the, the, behind the appointment, do you think? Yeah, I, I guess it's uh, the, the nighttime economy discussion, particularly with your international audience, will know that this is like a creature of the 90s in the UK, actually. Um, and uh, it's, I guess, pop came, I guess, more popularity in the recent times, particularly in the pandemic, because uh, you sort of start thinking about where and what you're investing in and where, where our assets are and are they being utilised, I guess. Uh, Sydney's history uh, in the, say, the last decade was, uh, I, I guess, characterised by uh, um, the lockout era, which let's just address that head on, where there was an intervention by government in response to a perception that there was uh, alcohol-related violence occurring and there was a couple of incidents and um, and which uh, sort of resulted in fatalities, unfortunately. And the government acted to, uh, I guess, curb that. And the, the, the incidents occurred in a certain part of Sydney, uh, in King's Cross. and But the intervention um, ultimately put in place a a kind of curfew. It was a prohibition on on uh, re-entering a venue after one thirty in the morning, and over a period of time, it eroded the ecosystem of the night. So, what do I mean by that? I mean, well, 
people tend to do more than one thing on an evening out. You might have a drink, you may go to a uh, restaurant, you may catch a theater show, you may, etc. you may go to a nightclub. But if, as you start taking out bits and pieces of that ecosystem, the overall offer takes a, takes a hit and, and that the community of businesses that uh, work together to provide that experience are, are, are effectively disabled. And so over a period of time uh, in Sydney, uh, the, you, you know, I went a couple of government inquiries, bit of discussion, right. Committee for Sydney, I think Tim may have been under your watch, actually, the uh, 24 um, hour economy report and uh, change of legislation and, and the government saw fit and I think it's right. And with some prompting, some encouragement from the private sector to say, you need a, a vision, you need a strategy and you need someone to lead delivery of it in much the same way, um, say infrastructure works. And I like to think about my, my job actually, and, and as an ex um, project uh, finance lawyer and civil engineer, almost like um, delivering social infrastructure. It is a, uh, it's, it's not easy. It, it's a bit of a process. Uh, you need to think about the audience, think about what it wants, and then go about the act of building and building uh, in, you know, not necessarily in the physical sense, but um, some of the soft things that uh, you need, community cooperation, these sorts of things to, to deliver what we describe as a vibrant, a vibrant nightlife, I suppose. And so uh, the appointment was made in uh, March last year, I think is when I started, and I've been now in the job for 12 months. And of course, in that time, uh, it's uh, people are like, what, what do you do? Everyone's locked down, you know. <laughs> your job your job is indeed to get them out. And well, I know response- you've got a great phrase, Michael, which is uh, your campaign is the, the war against the couch. <laughs> yes. What's the, what's, yes the, it's a good- what's the war against the couch? Well, it's a good, uh, it's a good, every hero needs a villain, uh, Tim. And I think that, and I, I mean, it's a, it's a good, it's a good uh, statement of intent that, and, and you'll often hear me describing it takes two clicks to stay in and have a good time. One for Uber Eats and one for Netflix. How many clicks does it take to go out? And it's a, it's a provocation that I put at the feet of the participants of the 24 hour economy, nighttime economy and say, well, when does your nighttime experience actually begin? It begins in the researching process, the booking process, and then when you leave your house, how do you how you how, how many times do you reach for your credit card or make an action at this point? So I'm now getting into my transport. I'm now arriving at a venue. I which I did I book? I didn't book. Why didn't I book? Uh, now what am I going to? And so on and so forth. And that overall experience, not only the ease component, but the overall cost of it. And the time that the uh, consumer is asked to spend is what I look at and I think about the pandemic. And this is universal uh, that if you think about these three different experiences, right, three entertainment options, one, at home, two, your neighbourhood, three, a destinational visit, i.e. I'm going to actually travel from where I live to 30 minutes away to the Sydney Opera House in our case, for example. What's happened to those three things during the pandemic? Let's take uh, candidate contestant number one the couch experience. Well, proliferation of um, streaming services, home delivery like we've never seen before. The aggregation is now happening with players like Google saying, you don't need to worry about five streaming services. We'll make that job easier for you. All right. So that, that offer has improved. Uh, candidate number two, contestant number two is the neighborhood experience. Well, we've said, well, you can work from home and perhaps, uh, you know, get to know your local area a little bit better. And for many of us, and you're seeing this, um, the, the mobility patterns are now more localised to suburbs than they were um, pre-pandemic. The third contestant is, of course, our concentrated CBDs, uh, and um, which were to some extent highly dependent on a nine-to-five workforce for their entertainment use. Come in nine-to-five, you know, meet your colleagues and go out afterwards. And, and how is that? experience now being impacted you've got to get on public transport uh, we're a bit nervous about that at times uh what am i going to get how much does it cost etc 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 and so i like to think about these three categories and the choice that consumers now have and say well whatever i'm going to do i'm going to make sure that contestants number two and three you know very much can compete with um the home entertainment offer there's lots to unpack in, in all that. I'm going to go back one step, a little bit of history for people who weren't aware of this. The thing about before COVID, the condition of the, the offer, uh, the, you know, the nighttime offer of the central part of Sydney before we go even wider. It's, it was one of those um, interesting moments where, for the reason that you gave, there had been some violence uh, surrounding drink um, in the CBD. And the discussion began about, well, the first of all, there was a kind of policing response and then a kind of government 
respond saying we've got to suppress that kind of activity. And the only problem, which we all kind of understood, but the problem with that then became, well, this is a global city, this is an international city. You arrive at the airport and it's all closed. Uh, at this, but it was closing kind of a lot anyway, because for reasons we will discuss, Sydney had never, uh, in my time in the CBD, it had lost a lot of its vitality before the kind of violence happened. Then the kind of violence came along, government responded to that, and then that kind of more or less shut down a, a part of the city at a, quite early in the evening. Although then the interesting thing happened that, you know, water find its own, finds its own level. And so people started going towards other bits, you know, quite close to the CBD, then further out again. So it didn't all kind of disappear. It just went away from the central district a bit. And just a bit of international comparison, you know, many, many people in my advanced age who were in London a long time ago will tell you that the CBD part, the financial services part was dead from four o'clock in the afternoon uh, in, in London. So it's not, it's not unprecedented, but what London had close to the financial services district was a kind of mixed use, like West End, you know, that never closed, that you could, you know, eat, eat and drink till three or four o'clock in the morning. No, so Sydney was kind of, and the government then, I think quite bravely before COVID started redrawing, you know, withdrawing some of the uh, restrictions. We were seeing that, I think, before COVID and we were welcoming that. And then COVID hit. So let's do the COVID thing, right? You've just went, you went through, I think, very interestingly, the kind of three offers, as it were. Where do you think we now are in terms of, you know, is it the wrong question to ask, will, will our CBD return to what it was before the COVID? Is that uh, the wrong question? The new normal is out there and we just have to uh, understand it now and exploit it. How do, you, how do you see that whole thing about the status quo ante? Has it gone forever? Oh yeah, I think the questions are relevant. To be honest, I think that uh, I, of the of of the the fast car that I'm driving, I pulled out the rear vision mirror some time back and said, "Well, what there is there is no going back." And because uh, the and because the assumption is the back was better, and I, I just don't know that we had it right for the reasons that you articulated. And uh, so I, I uh, you know I think what I'd like to see, and I think actually a, a sort of um, observation. I can't really sort of this is not evidence based, but given Sydney's history, what's actually happening at the moment is people are making a conscientious choice to go to the city for fun. Now, that may um, sound ridiculous, but for a long period, we were not making that choice. We were going for work only. And now, so in a sense, the entertainment category or the entertainment brand of Sydney CBD is is, is being lifted now and you're seeing this with uh like try getting a, a restaurant booking on a you know thursday friday night like and saturday night it is is very challenging you know and our, and our best restaurants at the moment we come on to some of the other challenges which is unrelated which is staff shortages and other things but you know, we are we are seeing um you know a, a a return of sydney as a playground and 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 in in a sense and and, and it perhaps should have always been and I, I don't know you're the city's expert and i enjoy listening to um to your podcast and the thing about it is that it's a modern city sydney in comparison to ancient centers like london like paris like rome and we enforced a business mindset into our city largely in the 60s 70s and 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 it kind of was i guess um bloated bloated on a certain type of um activity which you know i think this is kind of a restoring of balance and you know i i think that it's it's sort of you know it's my job to as i say i'm not really that concerned about the past now because it's not really what the question's being asked the question is can we work together to make sydney the most attractive city on the planet to live work play and, and invest and and a 24-hour economy mindset works to this ambition because it's ultimately about choice it's ultimately saying that it doesn't matter whether you are a, a lawyer or a clerk or a, a factory worker or a nurse you should have the same amenity or the same choice in your city irrespective of the time of day you choose to work and and that's very aspirational i appreciate that that that's aspirational but you've got to start with something and i think that you cite other examples of cities that have done this and sort of history around nighttime economy and nightlife and so on and so forth. And unless you have uh, a vision from government, um, well, there may be other examples, but a vision from government doesn't hurt, right? Like it doesn't hurt. No, I agree. Uh, let's, do, let's just, I think you've exposed something really interesting there, Michael, about the, uh, the history of, of Sydney and what it was like before and why it was like it was before. You, you, I think you're absolutely right to say that it is actually one of those places that it's it's CBD was a CBD you know it was kind of a almost like a single use economic generator 
Um, and part of the consequence of that was, well, I remember coming to Sydney first, and I, I was sort of, you know, as somebody who'd been a bit of a drinker in London pubs, you know, uh, and taking my teams out to supper from work, you know, seven o'clock at night, let's go to the pub. And then finding that a lot of people were leaving my office at 4.30 at five o'clock to go home, you know, and they would perhaps have a, have a wine at home rather than socialise in the pub. So that was happening before the COVID thing. And partly, um, I'm obsessed with this one matter, which is the um, the rents, you know, the, the because Sydney's got such a CBD focus on financial services, professional services, the rents were extraordinary. They were like twice the level they were in, in Melbourne. Uh, so, you know, <clears throat> it's very difficult when rents are so high to have such a diversity of uses that are not like captains of the universe kind of. Uh, and, I, and, you know, it's it's the one point I want to seize on. And it's, uh, I guess, uh, uh, there's a diversity of views emerging around the subject matter here, Tim, yeah. and I'm conscious of some of your listenership. And my job is to argue for my corner. And so I'm going to do it boldly in this yeah. instance. And if you have a business model as a landlord, which says that 98% of your rent is of your income is coming from everything above the ground plane. And then you've got 2% of your income from the ground plane and your ground plane is empty. Well, my, my ask is, well, why wouldn't you want to animate that? Because I think it's going to help you generate the other 98% of your income. And what, what happened, I think, is that the uh, some of the, the, the rental conditions in Sydney uh, are not as favourable as they could be when you compare them, as you just said, to Melbourne. And you've got for the, the diversity, we have very concentrated land ownership in yeah. Sydney. And so, you know, so, so going back to one of the observations you made earlier, where did our nightlife go? It went to Newtown. Diversity of landlords, diversity of offering, like, and you know, so you end up with uh, different things and smaller scale, right? Like, how do you sort of persuade uh, the leasing chiefs of major landlords that actually work? What is the model? What is a model that would both animate the ground plane and excite? consumers on a sustainable manner that's the question that i'm asking landlords at the moment and because everyone says well of course let's get the arts and culture businesses back in right like for a little while what for six months for three months get an artist let's let's help the poor artist out but that's that's not partnership and how much are you going to support the artist to do that is their art relevant to the audience etc cetera, etc cetera? i think that um i think we need to really have a good discussion about what model we're looking at when it comes to the use at street level of our um of, of our major cbd properties because you know, oftentimes you'll find a hipster a new business come in to a to a a, a building it tends to be uh you'll, you'll know the term but a b grade or whatever sub yeah. not subprime and and this is exactly what's happening in um the yck district york clarence and kennett where there's 20 to 30 small bars and, and, and now everyone's really excited about it. How do you keep the rents affordable? Because if you don't, like you'll start driving out those businesses. Now, no one, none of these, these tenants get paid on the upside of the building sale or the asset revaluation at some point. They don't get that, do they? You know, so you've taken advantage of the yeah. creativity, the hard work, the sweat equity, and that's a fair exchange is no robbery. If the rents are kept, um, affordable, fine. But if the rents achieve a certain level, then what about why, why can't the tenant get an upside on the on, on exit? So this is a very important international discussion, Michael, about the the reinvention of CBDs and the role of you know with the private sector working with the public sector, and is there a change of use that we need to go through? So for example, you know, they everybody's really talking about whether there'll be it'll be more mixed use within you know city centre stroke CBDs. Rents will moderate slightly, potentially allowing some other uses in. But your point is a more, um, almost like a tactical thing, or even more deeper than that, a strategic thing about using the ground plane in a different way. Maybe like submarket rental for something that actually adds to the whole value of the thing and attracts more people in, but makes the landlord take a kind of temporary hit. But actually, it's a strategic investment um, for a, a renewed future. So I think that that whole discussion about reimagining, reinventing the city centres and CBDs and, and how you do that, the role of activity, but also the role of change use classes and, you know, is, is going to be more people living in the city centre and all that kind of stuff. That's a very, that's one discussion. Can, can I give you a, a really good example of this? And I know I'm probably over egging it, but, and, but I can speak about this publicly because it's the state government's money now going into it. There's a site down in Barangaroo that uh, is in the Lend Lease development, which was formerly a retail store um, for yeah, David Jones. A big and, new professional services centre, uh, old Dockland area, pr very successful, three big towers, internationally competitive stuff. Go ahead. 
And, and, and so there's a two-story retail building that is now being vacated by a former retailer and it's now being used for a street artist to do an exhibition and our offices um, through one of our programs is investing in a, a immersive experience concept. Now, it, the, the question then becomes, is it better to have something that attracts millennial and Gen Z audience into the workplace so they can collaborate, get to know their colleagues, good for career progression, all the rest of it? Is that a good sell? Or do you, after the pandemic is over, you say, well, now, now that it's done its job, we're going to get rid of that arts component and we're going to refit it with either office space or, you know, conventional retail again. It's a question. I'm not saying like, I know the answer to it, but, but that's the choice. I think that we, you know, that, that it's a good example of what we, we've got to consider at this particular juncture in history. I think. You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, culture and the city series with your host, Tim Williams. I think the thing that's interesting about that is that we, because we don't know where this is all going to land, you know, in terms of, you know, occupancy of, of you know, will it go back to 100% or will it be, in my head, I've, I've, I call this a year ago, the 70% city, you know, the, uh, it'll be 70% back in the offices, 70% back on mass transit, 70% back in the streets. I made, I made the number up, but it sort of works as a kind of shorthand that it won't be exactly like it was before. You make a very good point, though, the... Um, you also make the point, I think, uh, Michael, about the role of government, because, you know, sometimes they get a, and it's funny, given that you've come from the private sector, you know, I think you've been very open to the kind of entrepreneurial stuff that we have seen from uh, from some elements of the New South Wales government. You know, I mean, the, uh, the fact that they are willing to uh, appoint you and have you do this kind of work, put some serious budget into it. Uh, allow some real flexibility, uh, which you've always pointed to around regulation, regulatory, you know, deregulation, in order to get some new momentum, um, that whole public-private piece, before we get to um, what's happening outside the CBD in the, the city centre, there's a kind of curation, public-private partnering going on about the transition in the, in the CBD, which the government is involved in with you, I think, the, this deregulatory play and putting some money into it as well. How, could you talk about that? Because I think it's quite exemplary. Yeah, I think it, uh, as I touched on, uh, I, I, I cut my teeth in public-private partnerships in um, engineering and law, actually. And and uh, when I arrived, I, I looked at it and I thought, really, in the pandemic, what's government doing? It's putting, it's 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 a joint venture partner, whether we like it or not. Like the amount of money that uh, government's putting into Dine and Discover voucher programs, and these are kind of demand stimulators to the international audience. And there's analogies in other markets, right? Like it, it, whether you like it or not, government councils are joint venturing for the next year, two years, say, right? Like, so, so that's an observation I just make. And then the question is who's best place to do what? Because in joint ventures, that's what you look at. I bring this, I can do this. I can, these are levers I can pull. But so, so I've come in with a, a very much a um, deliberate uh, thought process prompted by an interview I had with Mark Burris, actually um, the well-known entrepreneur here about what my role should be and, and what it shouldn't be. Um, and I think that the language of enabling environment is really important. My job in state government is to help create an enabling environment for the thing to happen, right? The thing is not up to Mike Rodriguez or indeed, I don't think any government bureaucrat to say that it should be this type of performance or it should be that type of thing or whatever. That's a free market issue, right? If you've got a good product, people will come and consume it. Now, uh, one of the best uh, uh, educators I've had in this is my good friend, Renny Adabo, who for years was was a marketing Microsoft Xbox and then with the Sonos home speakers. And ultimately they do all this without true government intervention, right? It's kind of like, well, you produce the consumer um, a product that people want and people consume it. The market's best place to do that as opposed to me deciding. What I can do, however, is provide the environment, help with the regulatory side, help with funding. And obviously if I feel like there's a knowledge gap, as I think there is in just being candid around, uh, you know, in, in Sydney, New South Wales, say, well, here's this conference or here's the latest intelligence from New York or London or whatever and try and help educate and, and proliferate knowledge so that people can, you know, take advantage of it. And I, like, I, I, I think what would be dangerous it would be for me because people often say, well, what's your solution? I'm like, well, what? Like, because it's that easy, right? Like it's not, and, and ultimately I don't know that it's, it is, 
government has a role around its cultural institutions and these types of things. They play an important part in that going out experience. But when it comes to, for example, the emergence of esports, Tim, which is, as you may be aware, like, you know, live, live uh, playing in stadiums of, of computer games. Well, uh, that's what people want to do. It's like, like that's, that's fine. Like why, why should I say that that is worse than, you know, classical ballet or whatever, right? It's, it's really up to the market to an decide that. A really interesting point, I think, about, because um, in general terms, there's a discussion about the role of government, let's say, beyond this agenda, you know, sort of what, you know, and very interesting, uh, brilliant writer, I think, uh, Mariana Mazzucato wrote a book called The Entrepreneurial State. And she argued that, um, <clears throat> that it, much like you're saying, I think, that the government, there isn't a, in the old sense, it was about backing winners. And then government, we found out we're backing the wrong horses, right? Because they didn't know enough. But she said that maybe it's not about backing the horses. It's about understanding the races that the horses are in. And that that knowledge transfer is about explaining to people who haven't got time to do what you and I are thinking about, which is the international comparisons. Government fills some of the gap, some of the knowledge gap to say, have you seen these five things that people are doing about this internationally or you know this is the kind of discussion we think you should you should get into and I think that's really important um I I, I want to talk a bit about some of the projects that you are indeed backing I would like to hear a bit about that but I also would like to given that you come yourself from the great place of Campbelltown which is <clears throat> not not as close to the center of Sydney as people internationally might think when we say it's in Sydney it's probably I can't remember probably about 35 kilometers from maybe a bit more actually from the CBD, but let us just say there are loads of places in Greater Sydney, which you're also trying to help and work with local authorities and the private sector. There are 20, 30 historic town centres. You know there are lots of stuff to look after. How how's that? But let's do that bit, and then let's do some the projects that you you like that you're you're involved in. But how do you see the opportunities and challenges for the not CBD uh, city centre cultural offer? Yeah, maybe I'll do a bit of both um, because they overlap. And there's a the government's got a published strategy. And you asked about other places globally that that are doing this. Well, we've been inspired by others, but I think that we are unique in so far as it's a 24-hour economy strategy as opposed to a nighttime economy strategy. Yeah. And then secondly, um, it's it's we're a central government here. The closest analogies are probably London and New York because of the size of their city councils versus. Uh, but but we have access to police, health, planning, transport, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are uh, uh, essential government functions. Yeah. So that strategy is public available on the uh, so we, people can find that um, but in it, it is a really powerful metaphor uh, and I think it it works for Sydney it could work elsewhere globally but it's the it's it's a, the neon grid as it's described and I've interpreted this as the way that Sydney lights up different times of day and night to tell different stories for anyone who's been to greater metropolitan Sydney we are blessed with pristine coastline through the mountains uh, there is uh, a great diverse topography it's the seventh most multinational, multicultural um, country uh, city on the planet, and it's sixty thousand continuing living years of culture as well, with our uh, our, our Aboriginals, uh, Aboriginal peoples. So you know those ingredients make for great recipes if you are, as I am, kind of chief publisher or chief storyteller for Sydney. Not because I'm going to write the stories, but I'm going to provide the platform for that storytelling to occur. What doesn't work is if everything is the same, everything is homogenous, everything is, no one travels from one part of, I don't want to name a, a particular brand or anything, but if you've been to this one here, do you really make a trip across town to go and see the same thing in another place? Not really. But what excites you is when, as it is now during Ramadan, Lakemba is an awesome place to go, um, whether or not you're Muslim or not, because it's vibrant, it's alive at night and not a drop of alcohol to be seen. You know, this is the, this is the storytelling part of Sydney. So these, the pandemic actually, and don't tell my bosses, although they may be listening, it actually has to some degree helped because that audience decentralization and uh, I guess um, commitment to local areas has resulted in uh, uh, investment of capital uh, in a sense, if you follow where I'm going, because people are spending money in their local areas and, you know, it's uplifted the local, those those areas of Campbelltown, Liverpool, Parramatta, the, uh, um, I guess the, the regional um, town centres across Sydney. So in terms of the uh, projects then we have on the go, um, I, I feel like, well, I feel like I was relatively influential in this one in, in persuading, uh, you know, you know, government to think about not CBD, 
revitalization, but CBDs plural revitalization. And so I've got carriage of uh, a fund that uh, is reinvesting in urban areas, 14 urban areas across Greater Sydney and as far as Newcastle and Wollongong. And that recognizes, I think to some degree, um, the flexible work um, patterns that are happening, the diaspora that's happened and making sure that all urban areas are getting a little bit of support through adjust the adjustments that are coming with the pandemic. And, and we can talk about that a little bit later if you'd like, but there's, there's certain things that, you know, business model pressures, et cetera, et cetera, that we need to think about if we want to people to get off the couch and out and about whether in the city or in their local areas. And so that that's one project. The other um, one is, uh, uh, and I think you and I've talked about this and, and you left uh, a, a great, um, uh, imprint on my mind, Tim. Um, and, and it was after you told me about the story when you were wrestling Marco Pierre watch to the ground and, and, but, but I was, but I was, um, I was thinking about essentially the business improvement districts that have worked well in the UK, um, as I understand it. And, and our, our process here, and we've started that, uh, a light version of that. And as a soft infrastructure, as you termed it, when we talked of, of business collaboration, and why is that important? Well, if you think about staff shortages, in supply chain pressures, uh, the inflationary pressure as we're going through right at the moment, anything that you can do to present, keep your offer compelling, affordable, uh, improved, uh, is going to be a competitive advantage. And so as part of um, my work, fundamental to that strategy uh, and the neon grid is getting these districts up and running all across Greater Sydney. And that sort of is the neon grid lighting up, so to speak. So that's a kind of governance legacy, uh, decentralised governance legacy involving public-private collaboration, right? So uh, Correct. Yeah. It'll, it'll survive. Well, I, I hope you have a long and happy career, uh, Michael, in this role, but it, it will survive you uh, as an as a inheritance for people to come together around their centres. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, it is, a, as a, the government's committed to it, published a strategy point of me. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's there. That's if, if, as long as I uh, do my bit and uh, make it happen, then, uh, you know, it should, it should, it should be a piece of infrastructure that continues longer to the future. And that's interesting. You looked around and the business improvement district kind of feel uh, it's, it's funny. We haven't done much of that in Australia. So this is a great opportunity, I think, to actually, you know, because some of these governance things, you know, some people think that it's projects and it's money and, and it often is, but it can always just be governance. It can just be collaboration structures that enable people to do a lot more together than they were doing separately. So I think that's a really good result if you can get that going. It's, it's, it's harder to cut a ribbon on a soft piece of infrastructure. Like that's the, the reality. And, uh, but it's, you know, th these are the things that actually I think will power us forward. I, tell me about the international dimension to this. The you alluded to it a bit. In, you know, you are part of the rebranding, the the re, at least the, the remarketing of of Sydney for an international audience as well as to its own people. I always thought on that last point. I always thought that it was one of the things we definitely had to do, which you're definitely doing, which is to try and sell the city to its own people uh, quite a lot, and for them, as you were suggesting, to go from where I am in the kind of north-ish inner north of the city, Manly, to to uh, Cabramatta, which is a kind of Vietnamese stroke uh, Laotian kind of center, fantastic food. But, you know, how many of us were really discovering these places before? But I, I feel that there's much more momentum around that now. People, have, I think, are discovering Sydney a lot more than they were before. Sydney-siders are. What about the international dimension? How do you see that challenge going forward? Yeah, it's it's um it's part of the strategy is changing the narrative really and and conversations like this help with this coordination with uh, colleagues uh, like Ariel Pulitz in New York and uh, Michael Killian in, in the UK for example all help and and doing a better job for our artists and creatives who've had a pretty tough time not only during the pandemic but prior to as you uh, may or may not have done sit around parliamentary inquiries for a while and you realize that people talk and so artist has a bad experience in sydney the network knows about it artist has a good experience in sydney the network knows about it and most recently we've been i guess um i think very proactive in delivering results for uh, our creative community and and that has a knock-on effect and you know i mean save your money up now or don't go spend it but also take out credit later because november through to march in sydney is going to be off chops it is going to be ballistic with the amount of um activity and so i think that the reputational elements of um of this uh you, you know it's it's 
it's incumbent on me working with my government colleagues to make sure the product, i.e. the experience, matches the promise. Well, Pride next year, what happens when people come to Sydney? Can they go out, be get around the city and find what they want late at night? That's the question and the timetable I'm kind of really working hard against because we're coming out of the pandemic and, you know, climate events and all the rest of it. It's quite a challenge. I mean, the, the, the best case uh, and local case, and it's, it sometimes causes ire uh, because it's, um, you, you know, that love-hate relationship we have with Melbourne. But Melbourne, uh, you, you know, put nightlife and uh, small bars and laneway culture at the heart of its strategy in the city of Melbourne in, in the late 90s, which is why they've ended up with a vibrant CBD pre-pandemic right like this is this has been a it's not accidental it's very deliberate and the deliberate component to uh my work means that beyond all of the media moments and uh, all those things that will come is a lot of late laborious boring but very necessary engagement with regional councils local councils working with them on their own 24-hour economy nighttime economy strategy right governance and bits and bobs development control plans, all this very necessary thing to allow uh, the capital that is seeking to invest in this to say, yeah, we will bet on Randwick, we will bet on Parramatta, we will bet on Canterbury-Bankstown. I'm mentioning those councils specifically because they have said, yes, we want this. And once you say you want it, then capital says, all right, great, how, how how can we get involved? And you get this sort of multiplier knock-on effect. And, and that's going back to some of the concepts we've talked about is that public-private partnership piece. Again, not for me to spend all the money, me to help create the environment and then invite the private sector in and say, what about it now, team? I think one thing that's interesting, uh, lots of things are interesting about this conversation, but one is around some of the councils that you're working with in Sydney have bought into the vision that it's good to have a vibrant, active town centre after nine to five because many of them didn't really want that before they were and lots of some of the locals are against noise and light or something you know young people running around their town centre so I think there's been a bit of a shift which you're helpful in by the way Michael I think in promoting and understanding the benefits of of the kind of having a longer shoulder longer day and more activity and it's safer you know all sorts of it's safe for people who live there and shop there. So that's all, that's very good. I was going to ask you about this. There's a, there's a very important, almost highfalutin conversation that we now need to have, right? Which is that you're effectively making a big intervention in a big city of international significance around something called, we think of as the cult- culture and the city, right? You know, our theme in this series is, is that this cultural discussion is not a, a minority, you know, minor part of the importance of a city. It's actually pretty core generally before COVID, but very important now to the kind of whatever you think of it as the relaunch or the or the, or the re- representing of our city to ourselves and to international visitors. Now, you've worked in the cultural and creative industries for a long time. Um, do you think we really are beginning to get it and government gets it and the community gets it that this culture thing is not a marginal activity, but pretty important to us? I think we are getting it um, more than ever before. And it has been prompted by the pandemic and what happens if you uh, are locked up in your house, you can't get together in community and, 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 you know, culture, community, where, where does culture come from? Right? Like it's, 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 it's ever changing. It's evolving. It's a function of people getting together with, uh, you know, either common or disparate views and, you know, telling a collective story over a period of time. And I think what's happened here is that there's a, dare I say it, a bit of a generational shift that was probably overdue. Um, There's a bit of a hemisphere shift in terms of what Sydney actually looks and feels like versus, you know, how how it's been portrayed. And uh, it's uh, interesting to me as a person of colour, Indian origin with a Chinese wife of New Zealand extract um, with Chindian children, right, at the front of this movement now. And it's like, what is... I was born in Australia, uh, you you know, but it's a very different Australia now to the white Australia um, policy that my parents entered the country under. Now, I'm saying that because if you get the city right, the city energises itself. The question is, how do you influence the levers and say, well, this is actually what's interesting. I I was talking with a journo earlier this week, Tim, and the the story of of Howden Street, like Emma Ramadan, like it was one of the most viewed stories on the Sydney Morning Herald, like this this week or whatever, and and that's a story that just has has been there for like the last decade. It hasn't just been hasn't been told, and like 
it, it, we, I think we overcomplicate it when we think about it. People, culture, you, you mentioned um, the tri trickle of water, right? Culture's the same. It will find a way to percolate and manifest. The question is, does do we raise it up and make it visible in the same way we make other things visible? And I think like, if you look at where the creativity um, is, is, is thumping in Sydney, uh, and this is why the West is really important um, beyond its, but that's where, that, that's where, that, that's where things are happening. You know, this is where storytelling is, is manifesting. Campbelltown you mentioned, I think is the second largest indigenous population in either the Metro or the state. I can't remember which. And, and, you know, so when it comes to the storytelling, what does that mean for Sydney? And I think it means very positive things. You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, culture and the city series with your host, Tim Williams. So look, this is very, for me, this is an important part of the story and part of your personal story and you're doing something about the city and the West, right? So this kind of a, a very important contribution, right? So let's just position it. The, you know, Western Sydney, Sydney, 5 million people, probably now almost 2 million live in the Western, so they used to be called the Western suburbs, but Western Sydney. Uh, the city, if you look at a map, largely can only grow westwards to a considerable degree. So it's it's got momentum, it's got investment, it's got government behind it, big projects coming, new airports, new rail connectivity. It's kind of getting its day in the sun, right? And at the same time, I think there's some pretty good council leaderships out there. I always love I always like saying this. I love the Campbelltown chief executive and the the people. I think they're doing good stuff down there. Like, you know, Paramount is doing good stuff. So you know, you've got somebody to play with, right? So you are coming along and your strategy is not just about the CBD in Sydney. It's not just about the historic, you know, market focused center of the universe. It's actually about places like, you know, that grew up, right? So how are they doing now? And what future do you see, um, it, you know, given your, your objectives, what future do you see for them there? It ties back to that culture thing you're talking about, because what you want from a city and whether that's two kilometers squared or 50, kilometers squared is inspiration, uh, knowledge, learning, right? Like, so, so what I see really is like an elevation during this period of, of these stories, um, because you, you know, we've been in strict from travel and so on. It's been documented. So, and, and, and I think it's not either or right. It's both. It's like, we are, we'll be a better city when we, we, I don't want some of it. I want all of it. And I want, I want, um, to be as excited by and I want audiences from every part of Sydney excited by what they can experience and it literally is the world on your doorstep and uh, and and I think that uh, we uh, that that's when you start talking about uh, city vibrancy yeah. and civic participation and this is this is what we're talking about so uh, yeah the, the the role really is uh, like I'm a custodian as I think most people in public service sort of see themselves and. It's to it's to kind of steer during this time uh, the government strategy and deliver it such that it actually delivers on that economic um, um, prosperity component, but also very much uh, uh, civic uh, sorry uh, citizen amenity, but not just for some for all, and that's the the bit that I turn my mind to. So um, you you talked early on. I thought it was very interesting about uh, we might end up with a better city actually, but probably uh, than the one we had before. COVID in terms of the range of offers and, you know, and I think the West and the centres in the West is a good example where, you know, they're strengthening all the time and uh, you're going to end up with a more vibrant cultural offer there than in the historic part east of the city. I, uh, we both agree on yeah. that. I think that's really good. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, so we've talked about the big global city. Uh, I want to I want to talk in the final section about how you see um, cities after COVID, what's your feeling about, you know, this? we've talked about Sydney and we can talk about that again, but again, let's go wider. The Sydney's part of a global city kind of discussion. Before we get there, we've got some more smaller cities that you're also kind of helping. You mentioned two of them. You've got Newcastle north of Sydney, which is the former mining and kind of industrial area, two and a half, three hours north. Should be quicker if we get a faster rail, yeah. Michael. <laughs> and then the other one is Wollongong to the south. They're both interesting um, I, I rather clumsily, with the help of our mutual friend, James, call this place the uh, Sandstone Mega Region because it includes Sydney, Newcastle and Wollongong in a kind of big city region. So you're doing some work also in Newcastle and Wollongong, your strategy affects that. Are you also working in some of the smaller regional cities as well? What's the story? Yeah, I, I guess uh, it's a, 
a bit of a moving target in so far as the Greater Cities Commission, it was previously the Greater Sydney Commission, is now sort of under um, you know the state's direction, kind of expanded its remit. I'd say to six cities, a six yeah. city strategy, which I think the numbers are, I think to maybe nine million by twenty fifty. You know, I guess a mega region. I think yeah. you probably you're probably more of authority on it than me, so I don't want to wax too much. But I think that uh, the, the 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 concepts that come to mind are this that. It's a the 24 hour economy strategy for Sydney. It's a principles document. They're not restricted to Sydney to uh, six cities. Nor they are there for for cities anywhere. And uh, encourage uh, people listening to this globally to pick it up, give us feedback, and and embrace bits that work and ignore bits that don't. Um, so so those principles are of equal applicability. Um, so is the first point I'd make. Um, the second point is really one that um, you've got. Uh, as you, you've identified, some of the infrastructure pieces are needed to provide actual connectivity. So there's a bit of a statement of intention, uh, but, uh, but but then how do you actually go on and, and make all of this work? But what has prompted it really has been, I think, that uh, realisation that we don't need to be uh, in one spot to do our work really. And that's the the thing that is, you know, it'll play out. And I think that the tree, tree change, sea change discussion, uh, there's people realizing all of a sudden it's not so easy. And, you know, so there's a bit of debate yeah, yeah. around, but, but there's something in this, there is definitely something in. So just to be clear, this know, is the kind of spatial consequence of hybrid, hybrid working, right? So that the, and by the way, the, the interesting discussion is that it is a kind of, Newcastle and Wollongong being like two hours away from the Sydney centre, that, that means that they can be part of this hybrid working city region. If it's too far away, even if, if it's a nice place, it, you know, it, it won't work the same way. Hybrid working needs to be reasonably close to the city centre so you can get in in a kind of hour and a half, two hour journey, a couple of times a week maximum or something, you know, but it mustn't be too far away and the commute mustn't be too hard. Is, is the way that works. So I, I sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, I think that's a really interesting context. So you are subject to the fact that the government is also interested in the Greatest Cities Commission in Newcastle and Wollongong, but your strategy is going to also involve um, some of the regional capitals, centres in New South Wales? Yeah, it's uh, without putting listeners to sleep, it was originally thought about only from a Greater Sydney perspective. So uh, it's but as but just due to the pandemic and the diaspora, it's kind of being <laughs> driven into wider thinking as it currently is. And so, active participation in in city councils, like uh, you've mentioned, is is part is now a part of our work scope. Um, and you know, it's sort of up to uh, you know, so policymakers, i.e., the bosses, to say, right, are we going to go hard after it now, or you know, what what's the the plan here, and then resourcing it. But uh, there's no there's no from my perspective. Uh, there's no um, monopoly on information, right? So if I think about some of the work that we do with our local councils and we build a local council acceleration toolkit, we're calling it. So it's a kind of one-on-one thing for councils. That's 128 councils across New South Wales, not just those in, in, you know, the greater Sydney metropolitan who can start on their own journey for what's appropriate. Now, what needs to then follow hopefully is elements of funding and service and so forth to, to bring these areas to life in the way that we think um, makes, makes sense. Yeah. So I've got three things I want to talk to you about in conclusion, I think. One is about, uh, I want to come back. The second one is your greatest hits. I want to talk about stuff that you really are happy with and enjoying and uh, you know we should look out for more from. So that's one, that's greatest hits. The final one is around discussing the, your view of the future of cities after COVID, a broader discussion. You, you're, you're kind of leading a strategy around one of them, a big global city, but you must be picking up vibes and conversations with others internationally. So let's have a think about that. Um, the, the, the first thing I want to do, go to towards the conclusion is about the people who've been doing it hard uh, in the creative and cultural industry sector in the last couple of years and whether there's light at the end of the tunnel uh, for them. What do you think about those hard-pressed colleagues of ours? I say ours, I'm affecting to be one of them just because I have a large number of guitars that I can't play properly. So, um, but uh, tell me about the creative and cultural industries folk and how, how are they doing? Yeah, look, it, it's um, and it's hard to speak for everybody, isn't it, in these situations? And always, we must remember the hardship that people have endured and continue to endure. Look, there's an 
and so I'm making generalizations here. So um, I'll be hung out for the people this doesn't apply to. There is an element of optimism creeping back in, um, but that that is off the back of what has been a pretty hard, hard couple of years. Uh, and, and audiences are, I'll, I'll say this, there is a lot of audience demand for entertainment. The delivery of it is um, challenging for a few reasons. Uh, not least of all, continuing impact of the pandemic, which isn't quite done, and you know, uh, then supply chain challenges uh, and and staff shortages, and so, in some senses, uh, and with, uh, my job is to talk things up, not down. These are just new challenges to overcome, and you know, so from a government perspective, it's like we've made impact here. How do we now start positively impacting those and eliminating those challenges? And, and some of them are really challenging, Tim. I've got to be honest. You know, it's a if you look at the hospitality sector nationally, it's twenty percent down from in terms of in yeah. terms of staff numbers. So you know, that's a, a legitimate challenge to to sort of embrace. Um, I think what what I would say, and it's a, a bit of a call out actually for uh, particularly those people. Uh, that, that that are listening to this in Sydney, New South Wales, we we, uh, we we tend to like talking the place down, which is not always helpful. There are, um, you know, I was at a comedy show two nights ago, sold out, extended tour, um, over two thousand people, crowd wow. a house, played to a full audience last week, yeah. and there's. As I said, November to March, there is a bucket load of stuff coming into Sydney. So, you know, the, the challenge is can we now work with the constraints of supply chain and staff shortages to, to make sure that we, we put on a good show? Um, so, so I think that's kind of the, the perspective. Uh, and But, but, but one, one key point uh, I really want to tease out here, Tim, is, is that the, the, the businesses that have – I guess, made it through this far, have done so typically by innovating and adjusting. And that's why in question of, uh, you know, ripping out the rear vision mirror, it kind of doesn't matter what went before. 2019 is such an arbitrary reference point now for so many things, you know. I think it's really about going, well, like it's only about the future. How good can we make it be? And let's not be limited in our vision. But it's interesting also point you alluded to, which I, uh, it's not, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm about to, but forgive me. (laughs) It's the, it's it's like a Darwinian struggle, you know, whether, you know, some people have been through some really hard stuff, but they've come out the other end and they're probably much tougher, much more innovative, even than they used to be before. And I don't want to say that it was a justified experience. I'm just saying, you know, that's probably true. Right. So, yeah, that's so true. And what's happening, in fact, and this always happens post any financial event, is that those who survive through are now going to take the opportunities presented by vacancies. And there's a million and one things that are going well, on. I think that's a really important point. You see, yeah. it, it doesn't just come to an end, it transitions. And if rents, right. if, if some people don't want to occupy the CBD offices, somebody else will come along and, you know, a company that didn't think it could afford to be in the CBD will come into the CBD. So there's right. going to be churn rather than just ending there's churn going on i think it's a really important point michael no second one greatest hits i know you have them so i want you to say what are you enjoying most what are you looking forward to come on things that you think oh i'm glad we did that that's going to be good i think um it's uh, <laughs> look. I was asked this question on a, another interview recently, and because we just published our year review, which again is publicly yeah. available, and and you know, someone said, "What's the thing you're most proud of in that year?" And and like often, it's not the thing that people probably think is the most important or the most noteworthy, and it didn't receive any genuine media attention when we did it. But during the, 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 the kind of uh, um, coming out of one of the phases of the pandemic, we, um, we coordinated a hospitality super Sunday. So mass vaccination for hospitality workers with New South Wales health. And, and the reason why it's notable is that it just wouldn't have happened without my office or the office of the 24 hour economy being in place to have the conversations with a very busy health department about, the importance of prioritizing hospitality workers to get vaccinated because of the staff shortage would otherwise result as we're encouraging people to go out. Um, So so it it sounds minor, but why it's important is that that's the job. The job is to champion it and the, and coordinate across multiple government departments. The headline that is, 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 is more noteworthy is that I think maybe four weeks ago, a festival was basically going to be canceled due not to the pandemic, but to, waterlogging of a Sydney um, park and um, with others we work to relocate that festival within 10 days 12,000 people from Victoria Park to the entertainment quarter um, and 
it went off incident free. Now, behind the scenes, there was a huge amount of activity that, as I would hope, punters would have no idea, which, but they included changing planning regulation by the planning minister, the governor signing off on it, um, police and health and uh, transport coordination to relocate. Now, that is now, for me, the high point of, if we can do this, what else can we do? And, and you know, CBD's revitalization, all of these things are, are great and they have huge amounts of money behind them, but it's that coordination and championing things because as flight facilities who headline that acknowledged from stage, they thanked, they thanked government and it wasn't, it, I was amazed. I was amazed. I, when would you ever see that ever happen in Sydney and, and it's happened? And so how do we keep honoring that? I think it's, I, I think that's, uh, that's worth the entrance money in itself. With that, that was that what was just said, because I've never heard that said before. So I, before I get to, let's think about the future of cities. I just want to say something. It's been a tremendous pleasure talking to you, not least because what you, the, the example that you've just given, you yourself, I must say to you, I want to pay you a, a very good compliment here. I hope you, uh, you know, buy me a drink afterwards. But essentially, not that many people can do what you've done. The often government dream that they want to bring private sector people in and then they, for the, they, they wander around in the dark because they've never worked in the public sector before. And it's often, it can be often a wasted experience of mutual disappointment because the private sector guy doesn't really know how to make stuff happen. Getting stuff to happen in government is an art, right? So you've one of the few people I've ever seen make that transition and made it work very well. I know you will say correctly that the, you had a good audience to work with and a good bunch of participants in government that were open to this. And I must commend that too. And it's unusual again, you know, I do believe, and I know some of the ministers concerned, they've been very flexible and very imaginative. And I think that's to their, to their credit, but it's, it's also your achievement. So I, I, I just want to commend that. Let's, let's go to, now that makes me reasonably optimistic and you very optimistic that not only is Sydney coming out of something, Sydney, great Sydney, will actually be better in many ways than it was before. And we mustn't, you, you, I think you're right. There's no point in thinking about how does it compare with something that's never coming back. And we probably didn't remember it properly anyway. You know, it's kind of a, it's lost, but the new stuff actually can be better. And some of the examples you've given of a renewed city are better, right? So let's internationalize this for a moment. Are you kind of a, you pick up stuff, talking to people internationally? Is Sydney, in your view, um, an outlier, doing well, part of a, everybody's coming forward. What do you feel about the, the kind of Sydney position in that, that city's kind of context? I think uh, that the, uh, that there's firstly there's the benefits of international information exchange that's yeah. the first point i'd make the second point is that cities are different uh so what principles can you take and then what can you apply and execute and so it actually does matter your geography your temperate environment all these sorts of things and so as i often tell people uh our reference point in sydney uh, for you know the two minute experts i challenge because they reference London, New York, and, and I say neither of which is renowned for its beaches and its temperate environment. So no one ever travels to Sydney to sit in the basement bar, come out with me on a night out and that will happen to you. But what, <laughs> how, how's our, how is the beaches and the waterways and how is that expression? Like, why, why aren't we sort of thinking about the city that way? Um, so I, I, I don't want to set myself up for a fail, but um, I find myself in uh, a number of international forums um, as I think a positive contributor now to the global discussion. And uh, as recently as two weeks ago um, with the NTIA UK um, leading people, Mirik Milan, the first nightmare, Ariel Pulitz from New York. And well, I can't, I can't undersell the importance of of, of having a, like a vision, a strategy and commitment to it because you need a North star for what is a significant stakeholder set. Now, the question is, can you then execute against it? But what I know is that if without without a plan, yeah, you're kind of probably going to be nowhere given the complexity of the participants in this space. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm a born optimist, Tim, and I I um you you know and and I'm I'm just committed to. Here's here's how I want to answer it. I launched Time Out in 2007 in Sydney, and my pitch to Time Out was. Uh, time out globally. Hey, what are you doing? If you're a global brand, you need Sydney in your network. You know, I'm doing you a favor. You're not doing me the favor. And Sydney is such a, a great city with such a great story. Uh, it, it may have lost its way around some of these things for a time, but I, I, I'm, I, I'm so positive now about actually being able to positively impact 
and uh, you, you know that vision and of, of such a, a global welcoming warm immigrant indigenous city that is there for its citizens um if, for, for them to enjoy and also to welcome both international visitors international capital and embrace them as our own and that you know i think that that um, I'm just committed to seeing that outcome, whether it's in the office of the 24-hour economy commissioner as a private citizen or some other capacity. And, you know, I know that you're very like-minded and, and many other people in Sydney are as well. So just well, a privilege to be part of the show. Well, I think it's a great way to end. And I'm just going to sum up, I think, three three things. One is, I think you're right that, um, in a sense, you can't can't benchmark the unique very easily uh, in terms of the cities. But what, but the, what you did point to, is that there are certain processes and collaborations and, uh, and ideas that can work in and should be tested in different contexts. And so we can look at Sydney and say, well, that's really interesting. I like the way they, they did that. And I think that is happening. So I think that we are getting a reputation as, a, as one of the ones that are on the up again and are more ebullient. And there's some interesting things going on again in Sydney that people should look at internationally. But I I, my only caution on this is that I do think we are benefiting and not just because you're there. We are benefiting from the experience and the passion and the independent mindedness that you bring, but also with the diplomacy that you can actually make government work with you and they, and they are willing to play ball. So I think we're in a very good moment and I want people listening to this to understand that Sydney's interesting and attractive again, but we're doing stuff here which is of relevance to you. Listen to the podcast, but also contact Michael and his colleagues if you want to know more about it and actually have, have the conversations internationally about um, how we might generalize some of these useful ideas. So Michael Rodriguez, thank you very much indeed. It's been a fantastic conversation. You've been listening to the second series of the Grimshaw podcast, Culture and the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.